Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Now today we are continuing our series in the book of Luke. And we're almost there. It's, it's, been, it's been a phenomenal series and I hope you've enjoyed it. I came in, you know, in March, so I, I've missed so much of it, but it has been such a good series. Now today we're looking at Jesus' crucifixion and death. So a heavy text. And there is a lot here, so let's, uh, let's get ready for it. Before we begin, I want to challenge us with something. As we look at the crucifixion and death of Jesus, it can become a real temptation to base our understanding of what Scripture says or even what it doesn't say upon what Hollywood says. I want to challenge us not to base our understanding of Scripture on what Hollywood puts out. I was really challenged and convicted myself as I was preparing this sermon at how many presuppositions... I brought to this text. As I was preparing, I realized that many of these presuppositions were from Hollywood and not from Scripture. We can easily look at a movie like The Passion of the Christ, a great movie, right, can help us understand, but yet we can often take that as 100% true, and it's a movie. It's, it's Hollywood. When we need to stand on Scripture, not Hollywood, and base our understanding and our life on Scripture. So that's my challenge for us, and that's what I want us to come at this text with, is not bringing our presuppositions to the text, but allowing the text to inform our life. With that being said, there are things within the text or other gospels that scripture doesn't give us a ton of explanation about, and that's not a mistake. We can trust scripture. It's it's all we need to help us have even greater understanding, to help us have even more insight, we will look at some uh, history and practices today. But scripture is all we need um, for life and godliness. With that, uh, you know, as we, last week, as we're looking at our text, last week, Pastor Brenton walked us through Pilate's choice that he gave to the Jews of releasing Jesus or Barabbas. After Jesus was tried before the Jews, they, they couldn't kill him. And so they brought Jesus before Rome. And that is where Pastor Breton walked us through King Herod and Pilate. But as we saw, Pilate and Herod both saw that Jesus was innocent. But because Pilate wanted to appease the crowds who were gar- uh, guided by the Pharisees, Pilate gave them the choice of Jesus or Barabbas. And the crowd's choice was to release Barabbas and to kill Jesus. In both Matthew and Mark's gospel, they give us some information that Luke did not include. Quickly, so we have some understanding, I want to read to us Matthew 27, 27 through 31. It's going to be up on the screen for you. This will help us understand a little bit of what happens in between verses 25 through 26 in Luke. It gives us a little bit more insight here. It says this, Matthew 27, 27 says... Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe and they twisted together a crown of thorns 
they put on his head, put a reed in his hand, in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on and led him away to crucify him. Matthew tells us that Jesus was led away into the inner places of the governor headquarters, kind of like an inner courtyard area. There before the whole Roman battalion, which was probably about 600 soldiers, Jesus was stripped and beaten. Both Gospels tell us that Jesus was clothed in a purple robe, which was Rome's signifying way of royalty. This was the soldier's way of insulting Jesus for being accused of being the king of the Jews. They made fun of Jesus, spit on him, beat him. We hear that we see the crown of thorns. Matthew and Mark use the word scourged. Now the word scourged is a tough word to know exactly what that means for Jesus. We don't have scriptural explanation of what scourging of Jesus looked like. Now, study Bibles, historians, commentators have a lot of, of ideas. And I want to share a little bit of what I found with you guys. In Roman history and practices, this was a brutal beating designed to completely and utterly humiliate and torture the victim. Within Roman history, this could include wooden rods or, or possibly wooden dowels. This include leather straps, ropes, chains, and even something called the cat of nine tails. Now, historically for Rome, the cat of nine tails was one of the worst ways of being beaten. This was a wooden handle that had leather straps connected to the end of the handle. Within these leather straps were woven sharpened pieces of bone, metal, and glass. Looking to the historical practices of Rome, two soldiers were stand on one at each side of the victim with these torture devices. And then they would beat the victim who was stretched out often deprived of their clothing, tied to a post. They would take turns beating the victim. History tells us that this torture device was so brutal that often it would injure the person so far that arteries and internal organs would be exposed. Scripture does not tell us exactly if this is the type of punishment delivered upon Jesus. It tells us that he was scourged. But we're not told the exact details. We are told he was beaten many times and he was scourged and we know he was beaten brutally. Also, many historians and theologians speculate on exactly how many times Jesus was beaten. Jewish practices were 40 minus 1. But Rome didn't abide by Jewish practices. We do know this beating was incredibly brutal. Rome was an expert at torture and killing. They had it down to an art. It was something they worked very hard at and they were proud of. We know, we don't know how many times, but what we do know that this beating was inhumane, brutal, and absolutely savage. After the beating, the soldiers dressed Jesus back into his own clothes and led him away to be crucified, which drops us right into our passage this morning in Luke as you're turning there, this will be Luke 23, verse 26, starting there. As you're turning there, the main idea of our passage is this. God's love for us is evident through what Jesus endured on the cross for our salvation. Let me say that one more time for you. God's love for us is evident through what Jesus endured on the cross 
for our salvation. Now, our text this morning, it, 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 it's long, and it's actually broken into two parts. So we have the first part, which is the cross, and that's verses 26 through 43. The second part is the death, which is 44 through 49. Now, let's look at our first point, which is the cross. Starting in verse 26, Luke 23, starting in verse 26, says this. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the women, of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning toward the, to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For hold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? After the guards were finished torturing Jesus, as I mentioned, they reclothed him and led him away. Soldiers prepared Jesus for his walk to the place of his death on a hillside outside of the city. But it was typical that Romans would force the condemned person to carry the top bar of their cross to the place of their execution. This was further humiliation and pain for the condemned. They forced Jesus to carry the top bar through the city in intense pain. Jesus had just gone through this horrific beating that we just talked about. Jesus was most likely suffering from blood loss, physical trauma to his body, and shock. His clothing had been put back on over his wounds. So every step, he is probably feeling the fabric rip from the dried blood. We were told at some point during this trek, the soldiers stop Jesus and take the cross from his shoulders, place it on a man that they yanked from the crowd. Many commentators believe that this is because Jesus was most likely too weak at this point to carry the cross on his own. Now this is incredibly possible, but not clearly explained in scripture. But what we do know is they made a man from the crowd named Simon, who was from Cyrene, pick up Jesus' cross. Simon was from Cyrene, which is now modern day Libya. And Luke tells us that he is in Jerusalem from the countryside. Simon, like every other Jew, was most likely in town for the Passover celebration. The soldiers forced Simon to carry the cross as Jesus walked in front of him. Simon was one of many people, we are told in verse 27, that have come to see the death procession. We are told that a lot of these people and women were mourning and weeping for Jesus as he was led away to be killed. Many of these people in the crowds are not exactly long-time followers of Jesus from Galilee. We know this from, because Jesus refers to them as daughters of Jerusalem, titles them as daughters of Jerusalem. They are people who are from Jerusalem and are mainly local women who turn out to witness executions. These local women, many commentators believe, are there just to view the execution and even possibly provide drug drinks to numb the pain for the condemned. Profe probably professional mourners. They are grieving and mourning for Jesus. 
But Jesus, as he's walking through the city in verse 28, Jesus hears the women mourning and grieving for him. He turns and speaks directly to them. If you look back at your screens, I'm going to read this, or at your Bibles, 28 through 31, it says this. Jesus says directly to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is telling these women mourning for him not to grieve for him. Jesus is more concerned about them at this point. Not for them in their grief, but instead for their hearts for what will come. Jesus is telling them instead of mourning for them, they should be weeping for themselves and for their children. One commentator writes this. At this point... As he, Jesus, goes out to execution, Jesus thinks not of himself, but of them. He wants their repentance, not their sympathy. He's, saying, he's not saying that they were wrong to mourn for him, but he is thinking about compassion, thinking with compassion of the doomed city and its inhabitants. His words direct the women to the importance of looking beyond the present moment to the inevitable consequences of the nation's sin. Jesus wants their heart and their repentance. Because as he says in verse 29, there will be a day coming when you will bless those who never were able to have children. You will ask for the mountains to fall on you and the hills to cover you. Jesus is telling them that there will be a time for Jerusalem of such suffering that it will be regarded as better to not have children. It will be regarded that death is better than life. Jesus is saying, don't weep for me now. Weep for yourselves because you are going to one day see such suffering. Verse 31, Jesus gives an analogy of, a green, of green and dry wood here. This analogy of wood is Jesus trying to help these women understand the suffering that will come in the form of God's wrath towards Jerusalem versus God's wrath shown towards Jesus. Let me explain this analogy a little bit for us because it's a tough one. The fact is that green wood does not burn as easily as dry wood. We, we know this. You want, to, if you, if you want to throw dry wood into a fire so it starts easily. But if you put green wood in, you'll be playing all kinds of games with the fire as you try to get it started and have it continue burning. One commentator sums up what Jesus is referring to here with the wood idea. Commentator says, If God has, has not spared his innocent son from such tribulation by permitting his crucifixion, how much worse will it be for a sinful nation when God unleashes his righteous wrath upon it by permitting the Romans to destroy Jerusalem? Jesus is the green wood, being that he is perfect, holy, and pure. God did pour out his wrath upon Jesus because when Jesus died on the cross, he became sin for us. So Jesus did burn even though he was the green wood. If God allowed Jesus to go through such pain on the cross in light of the wrath of God, and Jesus was perfect and without sin, how much worse would it be for Jerusalem, the dry wood, when God unleashes his full wrath upon them? They will burn up being the dry wood far more than Jesus who was pure and holy as the green wood. 
This destruction of Jesus is talking about here is most likely referring to Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. These women shouldn't mourn for Jesus, but instead for themselves as they will see such suffering to come. Now looking back at your Bibles as we continue reading starting in verse 32. Starting in verse 32, still on our point about the cross. Verse 32 says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And verse 32 tells us that two other criminals were led away with Jesus to be crucified. Matthew and Mark's gospel tell us that they were thieves. Crucifixion was typically a punishment for thieves, the worst of the worst, since it was a public way to die, and thus it would make an example out of them. So Jesus and these two men were led away to a hill outside of the city called the Skull. Some transla translations will use the Semitic name, which is Golgotha. The skull in Latin is Calvaria, of, or which, from which we get Calvary. Verse 33 tells us that once they reached the skull, they proceeded to crucify Jesus and the two men. We are told that Jesus was crucified in the middle with one on his left and one on his right. Now Luke and the other gospels quickly move past the actual horrific act of crucifixion. And I know that many people here have heard the act explained before. But I think it's vital for us to have a brief understanding as we build towards fully understanding the sacrifice and suffering Jesus went through as he poured out his love for us to offer us salvation. So, there is some debate of the exact ways Jesus was crucified. And we are not told the exact details in the Gospels. Historians have many thoughts. But looking at history, typically once a condemned person reached the place of execution, for Jesus that was the skull, the top bar they were forced to carry was then attached to the upright piece of wood that was permanently fixed into the ground. Person was then nailed or tied to the cross with nails going through their wrists, not their hands. And often one nail being driven into each foot instead of the typical imagery that we see of the feet being overlapped and one nail being driven through both. We know from John 20, 24 through 29, that when the rest of the disciples had seen the risen Jesus, but Thomas had not, 
Thomas said he would not believe it was Jesus unless he placed his finger into the nail holes, placed his hand on the side of Jesus. Then when Jesus appears to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, Jesus has Thomas do those exact things. Because of this, we can best infer that Jesus was in fact nailed to the cross. Now back in verse 34, we see that after Jesus had been nailed to the cross, Jesus calls out to his father. Jesus asks his father to forgive them. Now we are not exactly sure who Jesus is referring to here, but most likely it is everyone who was involved in crucifying Jesus, both the Jews and the Romans. Jesus is expressing concern for those who have done this to him because as Jesus says, they don't know what they're doing. This is possible that Jesus is referring to the fact that everyone involved doesn't know who Jesus truly is and thus the significance of what they've done against Jesus. But Jesus asks his father to forgive them. And then verse 34 finishes out with the guards dividing Jesus' clothing by casting lots. This practice was customary, but in fact, here it is a direct fulfillment of what we find in Psalms 22:18, which reads, you'll, look, you'll see it up on your screen. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, in verses 35 through 37, we see that there is a lot of people watching the execution. We're told in Mark 15, 29, that people who are passing by said this, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This is different than what we see the rulers saying here in Luke. The rulers are directly insulting and making fun of Jesus here. They're calling into question his deity, his kingship, and his ability to save others and not himself on the cross. We also see the soldiers mock Jesus and even offered him sour wine. It's unclear if this sour wine was kindness of the soldiers or just their way of quenching the victim's thirst for a short time and prolonging their suffering. Soldiers also nailed an inscription that we find out from one of the other gospels is from Pilate that detailed Jesus' crimes, which was clearly stated, this is the king of the Jews. In verses 39 through 43, Jesus' time on the cross continues in the midst of the belittling and abuse, we see that one of the other crucified victims in the midst of his pain and on the road to his death joins in with the soldiers, crowds, and rulers, telling Jesus that in fact, if he is the Christ, the Messiah, that he should save himself and them from their suffering and pain. But then the other criminal jumps in to defend Jesus. The other criminal gets it here. He understands. We see the criminal knows that he and the other man are getting what they deserved. But I love it. The criminal says that Jesus is innocent. And the criminal asks that Jesus remember him once Jesus enters into his kingdom. This must, seen, must be seen as the criminal's repentance and thus confession of the knowledge of who Jesus is and the need for salvation. This is clearly evidence of this criminal's fulfillment of Romans 10.9. He confessed and believed and was saved. And thus Jesus responds to this man and, and tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Let me pause here for a second. There's some really key 
theological concepts that I want us to hold on to from this interaction between Jesus and the repentant criminal here. First is, it doesn't matter what you've done. Salvation is for all. This criminal or thief, as the gospels title him, sinned. And because we know that, that Rome only saved crucifixion for the worst of the worst, this man did some really bad things. He was crucified, and by his own admission, it was a just punishment for what he's done. Think about this, though. Very few children, teens, and adults are willing to admit that the consequences or punishments they are receiving are just or adequate for what they've done. Every person will always downplay their wrongdoings and upplay how brutal and unjust their punishment is. Think about the radical change for society, but especially for Christians it would be if we truly viewed our sin as what it was, a direct rebellion against God, and that the consequences or punishments that we are receiving because of it are just. I mean, that's why you hear from the pulpit repeatedly where Paul mentions that the wages of sin is death. That is the penalty for our sin is spiritual death. And we must view that as the just consequence for our sin. Just as the criminal said, that is what we deserve. Now, the second point that we need to grasp that is key from this exchange is that God's grace is greater than the sum of our sins. You see, God's grace and mercy, being that God is giving us what we don't deserve, which is grace, and not giving us what we do deserve, which is mercy. That the power of God's grace, which is shown to us in his salvation that he's offered us, that is enough. Jesus' payment for our sins, which we see as the blood he shed on the cross for us, it was enough. It fully paid for it. The debt that we owed for our sin was paid completely. There's no more debt. Yes, we still have sin in our lives and we need to repent from that sin and turn to follow God. But the, the debt, the wages have been paid through Jesus' death on the cross. And we take, we accept that salvation when we ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. God's grace is enough. And we see that so clearly because of this repentant criminal's confession. Jesus offers him grace and is enough for him to be saved and to join Jesus in paradise that day. Which brings us to our third key theological concept we glean from this interaction, which is salvation is instant. Jesus tells the criminal that today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, he will join Jesus in paradise. We need to see this clearly because it tells us that there is no waiting period for our salvation after, after the confession and belief. This man was clearly going to die. And immediately after his death, he was going to be in paradise. And this is why we have confidence in Christ's work on the cross. Because it is guaranteed by the Spirit, worked for completely by the Son, and granted by the Father. That is why we have blessed assurance. 
It is all dependent upon God. Just as the thief in confessing was completely dependent upon Christ here. For us, we don't know when we will die. This criminal did. He knew his death was quickly coming. But we must hold fast to the idea that the moment we leave this earth, we will spiritually be with Jesus in paradise. There isn't some waiting period. There isn't purgatory. There isn't things you need to do to fully accomplish your salvation. When we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has died on the cross for our sins, that he is our Lord and Savior, the King of our heart, we are saved. And upon our death, we will be with Jesus in paradise. Think about this. Many people think that this part right here is the most preposterous part of the gospel. That salvation is granted the instant genuine faith is placed in Jesus because it seems unfair. How can a person live a life of sin their entire life and then be saved on their deathbed? But think about this. In scripture, there's a parable of the farmer finding workers who pays workers the same the first day they go out as the workers he finds at the end of the day. When they complain, the farmer says, it's my farm, and you agreed to the wages. In the same way, we rejoice that others are saved even on their deathbeds. What an incredible blessing it is that, that God works in that way. Which is where a lot of people, that deathbed is where a lot of people turn to Jesus because they see their own morality and it makes them think of what comes next. You see, we should feel blessed that God cho has chosen us to work. We should, we should think it's incredible the grace and mercy that God extends. But I also want you to notice this. God uses this thief to propose the gospel to world, the world for centuries. How many people have come to faith knowing that this man literally lived a life of sin and had no way of working his faith out but God uses us as he chooses. And no sinner is too far or too close to death to be saved and to make an impact on the kingdom. Praise God for he works in wonders that no matter how much time we have left. Friends, please don't miss these key concepts here. These are vital for us to understand as we look at this incredible exchange and the repentance of this criminal. Which brings us to our second point this morning, which is the death. Look back at your Bibles as we finish reading our passage. Starting in verse 44, it says this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light faded, I'm sorry, failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn into two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, this, this, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And in verse 44, we see that it was the sixth hour or it was noon. We told that there was darkness over the entire area for three hours until the ninth hour or 3 p.m. 
This was, this was not usual. It needs to be understood as supernatural here. Verse 45 tells us that the light failed, meaning it was completely dark. It also tells us, 45 also tells us that the curtain was torn into two. Now the curtain is referring to the curtain in the temple. Within the temple, there are several different sections, all divided by curtains. This curtain here is most likely referring to the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Now the Holy of Holies is the innermost part of the temple and the place that was only entered once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Holy of Holies was where God come, came down to dwell. In Matthew, we're told that the curtain torn into two during an earthquake that shook the earth. Now, the importance of the tearing of the temple curtain is huge. There are a couple different theories, but I think the best explanation here is the tearing of the temple signifies that God is now approachable through Jesus. Jesus becomes our mediator to the Father. God is no longer only dwelling in a room in the temple that is separated from everyone and only accessible one day a year by the high priest. Instead, through Jesus, we now have access to the Father. Through Jesus' death, Jesus has made a way into the very presence of God. This is huge. Friends, before Jesus' death, through the Old Testament sacrificial system, Jews had to come to a priest and ask the priest to go before God for them to forgive their sins. God was separate and far. But because of Jesus' death on the cross and the salvation offered, we now can have complete access to the Father through Jesus. We can talk to him in prayer. He's moving and working in our lives. And the tearing of the curtain is complete evidence of that. Now in verse 46, Jesus cries out to his father and committing his spirit into his father's hands. This expression of Jesus to his father should be evidence of the trust he gives his father. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is still Jesus' communication to his father, but yet showing more of the agony of the weight of Jesus taking on the sin of the world. Then Jesus breathed his last, and Jesus died, which is a, a big deal. Friends, Jesus really did die. There are people that believe that Jesus really didn't die, that he just passed out, he swooned, or he fainted on the cross. But no, Jesus did die. It's important that Jesus died because it did accomplish the need for the blood that was shed to pay for our sins. Also, without Jesus' death, there will be no resurrection that comes. What an incredible blessing that Jesus' death brings the resurrection and brings our salvation. I don't want to go too much farther here because I don't want to take away from what is coming, but Jesus did rise again. Incredible blessing from that, and we will see that soon. The rest of our verses this morning through 49 tell us of one of the Roman soldiers who expressed that Jesus was innocent. And then of the grief and sadness of those who were watching. And with that, Jesus has died on the cross, obeying his Father, accomplishing our salvation, paying for our sins. Now we've seen from Luke the horror of the cross. 
the suffering, blood, and love that was poured out for us on the cross. The cross and what Jesus went through on it should and, and can turn our stomachs and bring us to tears. You see, it is vital for us to understand that Jesus did not deserve the cross. The repentant criminal made that clear. But we did deserve the cross. And it was our sin, our rebellion against God that put him on the cross. Jesus died to pay for our sins. And it was our sin, our rebellion against God that put him there. Jesus died to pay for our sins. Without his death on the cross, without his love that was shown through his blood on the cross, we would have to die for our sins instead. But we can't. Only Jesus, who was sinless because he is God, could die for our sins, paying for them fully. Friends, when we look at the cross, we have to see our sin. I think sadly Christians find it so much easier to look at the cross and to only see God's love for us through Jesus on it. Which is great. We need to see God's love, but we need to see our sin. We need to grasp that our sin is the reason that Jesus went and died on the cross. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it to offer us salvation. He did it to offer us a way to deal with our sin. He did it to conquer sin. We have to let the full weight of God's love for us completely overwhelm us. Author Jerry Bridges, who wrote Trusting God, once said, if we want proof of God's love for us, we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Friends, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die the worst possible death, a death that was meant for criminals, a death that he died as an innocent man. He wasn't a criminal. He is our king, the son of God, the Messiah, our savior. God loves you so much and his love for us is so evident in the cross. We can't see that love fully without two things. Our sin that needed saving and the gruesomeness of the cross. Grasp this. God hates sin. He is repulsed by it. Sin cannot, cannot even exist before him. Yet because of his great and amazing love, he chose to send his son to become sin itself to be a stand-in representing all of humanity's brokenness, our rebellion against a holy God, so that he could demonstrate his love for us on the cross. Billy Graham said it perfectly. God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. Friends, do you see your sin it's not something that we want to see, right? It's not something that we want to choose to look at our sin. But do we see it? Do we know that it was our sin that put him on the cross? Do we know that, that we needed saving? Did you know that you can't save yourself? That you need Jesus? 
Now, this isn't just a message for those who have yet to accept Jesus. Now, if that's you, if you're here or if you're online, please hear this. God loves you and wants to, wants to offer you salvation, wants to change your life, wants to welcome you into the family. If that is you, come talk to one of us. We'd love to talk with you or email us. We'd love to help you. But the need to see our sin, the need for a cross and seeing God's love for us on the cross must be something that every single person on earth must acknowledge and hold on to. We need to see our sin each and every day so that we can celebrate what Jesus did on the cross. That his work on the cross has given us salvation. Each and every day we must come back to the cross and repent from our sin and celebrate that we have a savior. We cannot lose sight of the horror of the cross. But we, we also must never stop celebrating the victory and love that shines brightly on that wood. That is why we call the Friday before Easter Good Friday. It is because of the love that was shown, the victory over sin accomplished, and the salvation that was offered on that day on the cross. Friends, do you believe it? Has God changed your life? Have you asked him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you turned from your sin and made him your Savior? Do you believe that he, that his sacrifice was enough, that his payment was enough, that it was complete? The debt has been paid. Do these things shape your life each and every day? I pray that for each and every one of us, we can answer, yes, that, that he is our savior. He is our king. That we believe, that we follow, that we have turned from our sin, that we see the cross and we are thankful for it. His love is so evident that it was so poured out. Thank you for the cross. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we love you. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. We thank you that, that you sent Jesus to become sin for us, to take on our sin. That his love is so evident for us. May we never lose sight of the cross, the pain, the suffering, the horror. May we never lose sight of the fact that it was our sin that placed him there. But we may we never stop celebrating and rejoicing in the victory accomplished on the cross, the salvation given on the cross. May we believe it. May we accept it. May we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. May it shape our lives, mold us into your son, your daughter. We love you and we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.